2: Great is our Lord, and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite.
0: Psalm 147, verse 5, American Standard Version
2: For in Him were all things created, in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things have been created through him and unto him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist.
0: Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, American Standard Version. Hello, I'm Victoria K. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today, we want to continue our study of the origins of the universe and life with our series that we call Truth in Genesis. To help us understand not only what the Bible says, but what the latest scientific evidence reveals, we've invited Dr. Jonathan Sarfati to be our guest in the studio. Dr. Sarfati is an internationally known author and the lead scientist for Creation Ministries International. He has written a number of widely selling books that bring an understandable yet comprehensive scientific perspective on what empirical observations tell us about the age of the earth and the origin of life. Dr. Sarfati has sold hundreds of thousands of books, such as Refuting Evolution, Volumes 1 and 2, By Design, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, and The Genesis Account. During this series, Dr. Sarfati has been answering questions about a wide variety of topics that pertain to the evidence that supports the historicity of the literal biblical account. Of course, we recognize that this can be a very controversial topic, so our approach to our discussion has been to use reason, logic, and evidence to support all of the points that underscore the accuracy of the Bible text. Sometimes you will hear people say something like, You have faith! but I have science. This statement creates an artificial distinction between faith and science, with the implication that the Christian faith requires the suspension of our trust in science. Nothing could be further from the truth. And this is one of the reasons that Dr. Sarfati's books are so important. His books are filled with detailed explanations of how the creative process described in Genesis is amply sustained by empirical observations and the rigorous application of logic and reason. Specifically today, we're going to see that the existence of life in any form requires not just chemistry and biology, but also information, and a great deal of it. But before we get too far into our discussion, Dr. Sarfati, would you like to say a word of greeting to our Angered by Truth listeners, and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Thank you again for inviting me here. It's a pleasure to be on Anchored by Truth. Now, I come from Creation Ministries International. Our website is creation.com. And we've been going for 40 years now. I actually am from Australia and New Zealand. I was a dual national from those countries, but I'm also now an American citizen too, as of September 2019. I'm a PhD scientist. I studied chemistry and physics. I've been working for Creation Ministries for over 20 years now. My job today is actually writing books and articles and giving talks in churches around the country showing why Genesis is extremely important to understand the rest of the Christian faith as well as how it makes perfect scientific sense. When you understand the real science, Genesis really provides a huge number of insights.
0: Dr. Sarfati? During our last several episodes, we've been discussing key points that point to the fact that a literal interpretation of Genesis is not only true, but well supported by reason and evidence. First, there are significant scientific problems with the way dates have been traditionally assigned to the age of the universe and the earth. Second, there is a considerable body of scientific evidence that supports the ages for creation and the earth derived from Genesis. Third. The Noach Flood dispels the need for a long-age uniformitarianism to explain the geologic configuration of the Earth. A young Earth would be an arrow in the heart of evolution, as that term is commonly used. In our last episode on Anchored by Truth, we saw that there is another arrow that is fatal to -to goo-to-you evolution, cellular information. But another line of scientific evidence that pierces the evolutionary veil surrounds the origins of life. What are the major problems that are encountered when someone tries to explain how inanimate particles come to life through the random collision of molecules?
2: Yeah, this is one of the acts of faith for the materialistic worldview, is that life once came from non-living chemicals. And this process that's supposed to have happened is called chemical evolution, or abiogenesis, different names for it, but it requires life to come from non-living chemicals. And yet life, even the so-called simplest living things, are frightfully complicated. They've got so much information, they've got amazing numbers of machines, and all those things have to be working together, otherwise life couldn't even get started. And the thing is, if self-reproducing life can't get started, then evolution by natural selection also can't get started because natural selection is differential reproduction. So you must have reproduction before you can have natural selection, which is a Darwinian evolution. So without chemical evolution, evolution is dead on the water.
0: Thank you for those observations. Obviously, this is a topic that could easily consume hours of discussion. But since we don't have that kind of time today, Let's get right to some detailed questions. The existence of life requires specified complexity. It also requires that one scientist has termed irreducible complexity, also known as functionality threshold. What do these terms mean, and how do they relate to the ability of blind chance to animate atoms?
2: Well, the irreducible complexity or the functionality threshold refers to the point that there's a certain minimal functionality that must be in place before life could even start. So you've got a lot of different components that have to be put together. And the thing is, natural selection can't select for these things unless they have some sort of advantage. Unless things are already fully formed, there's no selective advantage to having just the parts. They don't work for anything. And as I said, natural selection can't even be invoked anyway for the origin of first life because it requires reproduction. Now, specify complexity is a little bit of a different thing. You have different concepts. You've got the idea of order, which is repetition of a certain fixed pattern. Like crystals are examples of order in a sequence of letters. A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. That's order, but it's repeating a very low information thing over and over again. That's order. Now randomness I mean think of like a junk pile for instance is random okay lots of different ways but they're all junk piles there's no order behind it the thing is, specify complexity is something different again, like the sentence that we're exchanging, like a book you read, there's no order in it. There's no, not this repetition of very small amounts of information. It's not ordered, but it is complex. It's got a specific complexity because it's also not random. So there are three things you can think of. A random jumble of letters like an alphabet soup, that's randomness. You can have order like a repeated phrase, a repeated sequence of letters, or you can have something like a book, which is specified complexity. And the information in living things is specified complexity. You see, order can be explained by natural law, and so can randomness. But there's no law of physics or chemistry that would explain specified complexity. It requires something outside the natural order, an intelligence. That's what we always find when we see specified complexity, there's an intelligence behind it.
0: The Yuri-Miller experiments supposedly demonstrated that electrical discharges simulating lighting when sent through a mixture of gases could produce life-sustaining amino acids. But we now know that the results of the experiments to explain the formation of life were wildly overstated. What did these experiments actually do, and why did they actually not demonstrate how life could have
2: formed? Well, first of all, Miller was a graduate student under the prestigious Harold Urey who got the Nobel Prize for discovering deuterium or heavy hydrogen. Now, Miller had the idea that You need to have certain building blocks of life and maybe an energy source through some sort of primitive atmosphere would would produce these building blocks. So he selected an atmosphere he thought the early Earth had, which is methane, ammonia, hydrogen, water vapor. And he applied energy sources like discharges and ultraviolet light. And they produced little building blocks of life. But first of all, you had to have a trap to isolate these building blocks, because the problem is that the very sources used to build them would also destroy them unless they were isolated. And so if that was a real simulation of the early Earth, you'd have to think of some sort of traps that would actually isolate these things. And it's very hard to find a trap because ultraviolet penetrates through meters of water. I mean, you can get sunburned while swimming, you realize, on a cloudy day because water doesn't help you against ultraviolet radiation. So uh, a realistic trap is one problem with it. But also, the very amino acids that are produced are in a very tiny amount and they're grossly contaminated by things like formic acid that would actually stop the amino acids from doing anything more with it. Because the point of amino acids and living things, they're the components of proteins. Because amino acids have things that can bind on two ends of the molecule, and therefore it can keep on binding with another one, then it binds to the next one. They call that a bifunctional molecule, okay? The problem is, if you have a one-handed molecule, a unifunctional molecule, it would actually stop the chain growing at one end. And the thing is, people who make polymers, which are compounds made of lots of building blocks, They know they have to avoid contamination with these single-handed molecules. Otherwise, it stops the chain growing. And yet, the Miller experiment produced 5 to 1 ratio of formic acid, a one-handed molecule, to glycine, the simplest amino acid. So the results of the Miller experiment would be inimical to going any further. The other thing is, the amino acids come in two different varieties. You've got left-handed and right-handed, which are like the mirror images, okay? Like your left hand and right hand are reflections of each other, okay? Your left hand can fit only in a left-handed glove, not a right-handed glove, you see? The thing is, proteins are exclusively left-handed amino acids, and DNA is exclusively right-handed sugars. You mustn't have any contamination. You see, even a tiny amount of contamination with the wrong-handed molecule will stop these things doing the job, and yet the Miller experiment is going to produce a 50-50 mixture. So, again, the results of the Miller experiment are totally impossible to get life from.
0: If the primordial atmosphere contained oxygen, early organic molecules would have been destroyed by oxidation. If the primordial atmosphere did not contain oxygen, there would have been no ozone layer to block ultraviolet radiation, which is particularly deadly to organic materials. How did evolutionary scientists try to get around this simple barrier to life's origin absent intelligent intervention?
2: Most of the time, evolutionists don't even talk about this real problem. Now, for instance, there's no evidence that the Earth ever contained the sort of atmosphere used in the Miller-Urey experiment. It seems that evidence from even the rocks they call the earliest rocks showed evidence of oxidation, which means there was oxygen even in the primitive atmosphere. So there was never a reducing atmosphere anywhere on Earth. So that invalidates a Miller experiment right at the start because they've got the wrong gas in their mixture. The thing is, oxygen actually is a very reactive gas. I mean, it reacts with all sorts of things. In fact, oxygen would be very deadly to life if we didn't have antioxidants to deal with it. It would poison us. You see, we, of course, we, we know, we think of oxygen as being essential for life, and it is. It's a very reactive thing, very good for the chemical reactions we need for our body. But it would be a poison if we didn't have the ability to cope with it. So when you've got a, a primordial soup producing supposed amino acids, oxygen would break these things down. And in fact, they wouldn't even form in the first place. That gives you an idea how important it is to exclude oxygen from the mixture. It just would be deadly for any idea of life coming from non-living chemicals. The problem is also the ultraviolet from the sun is actually very strong and would destroy the organic materials being formed in this primordial soup. And the thing is, we're protected from the UV because of the ozone layer. Now, ozone is just a molecule of three oxygen atoms. The oxygen we breathe is two of them, two oxygens. Ozone is three of them. So the thing is, you need to have oxygen to produce ozone. So this is the oxygen paradox we have here. If you have oxygen in the atmosphere... The amino acids couldn't form, and if they did, they'd break down. Without oxygen, you'd have no ozone, which means UV would break them down instead.
0: All life on Earth is cellular-based, but for a cell to live, it must have a permeable membrane to enclose its protein machinery. But the protein machinery is necessary to build the permeable membrane. Isn't this an absolute impediment to the validity of conventional evolutionary explanations for the origin of life?
2: I believe so. In fact, uh, the penicillin type of antibiotics work by destroying the cell membrane of bacteria. So we can tell from the way antibiotics work of how many different things are needed for life to work, including the cell membrane to enclose all the material that's required for life and stop it leaking out into the surrounding environment. You see, the membrane is made from fat molecules. They call them lipids. But one problem with lipids, as you know, when you try to wash with soap in very hard water, is you get a precipitate. You get the scum forming, you see. So the problem is, with it, in a primordial ocean, you've got these calcium ions in the ocean, just like we have in hard water. Ocean water is very hard. So it would precipitate out the lipid molecules and prevent any membrane forming. So that's a huge problem. But also, indeed, you need proteins to make the membrane. You've got enzymes to produce them. But without the membrane enclosing these enzymes, they would actually leak out into the surrounding substance and be destroyed. Okay, so you need the lipids to enclose the enzyme, but you need the enzymes to make the lipids. So yeah, there's a whole lot of these sorts of things, these sort of chicken and egg type problem. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? you got which came first, the lipid or the proteins? And you've got so many examples of these sort of things that all have to be working together, otherwise life couldn't even get started.
0: The centerpiece of cellular reproduction is DNA. We now know that DNA isn't just an arrangement of chemically linked molecules that happen to have a particular arrangement, but it is actually more akin to the software that operates a computer. The cells' proteins are dependent on the DNA for instructions, but the DNA is dependent on the proteins for its own existence and maintenance. Doesn't this mutual dependency destroy any possibility that life could have risen by chance?
2: There's a lot to answer here. Yeah, all the instructions that make us who we are are carried in the DNA molecule, which stands for definitely no accident. Well, actually deoxyribonucleic acid, you see. And the thing is, the instructions on the DNA are riding on the DNA chemistry, but are not produced by the DNA chemistry. In fact, it's exactly analogous to a printed page. A book is made from ink molecules on paper, but the information in the book did not come from the ink molecules. It came from outside the ink molecules. See, information is extremely important to understand this issue. It's not matter or energy, but rides on matter or energy. I can prove this very simply. I mean, I travel a lot. I carry my computer. Maybe I should save weight by wiping my hard drive. No, it doesn't work that way because information has no weight, you see, so it makes no difference. But it really is real. It's a difference between a wiped hard drive and a hard drive with all my data on it. It's clearly different, but it doesn't weigh anything. This is the key thing to understand in which a lot of evolution is overlooked Is a key point of information riding upon the DNA. But the thing is that the DNA information must be read somehow. It means it must have a language. Like a book you need to read, you have to know the language the book is written in. Like, for instance, the word gift in English means a present, something you get for free. In German, it means a poison. Why could you not? I gave some creation talks in New Zealand, and a German came up to me afterwards, confirmed I was right about that, and he said that when he first came to New Zealand, he was appalled by our Christmas cousins because we tried to poison our families. So you must have the right language, otherwise the information is meaningless. And the thing is, DNA, though, has multiple languages. Think of a book requiring at least human level intelligence to write a book. But DNA has multiple languages, like a book you can read in English and German and read backwards and read every tenth letter. I mean that would require superhuman intelligence to program something in multiple languages and that's where the so-called junk DNA comes in the other languages people know about. In fact the whole concept of junk DNA belongs in a junk pile. Now the other thing is the DNA must be read by protein machine but the DNA contains the instructions for its own decoding machines. So here's a question, the sort of chicken and egg problem. Which came first, the decoding machines or the DNA? Because you need the instructions of the DNA to make the decoding machines, but you can't read those unless you have those decoding machines. Decoding machines require energy, which is made by ATP, made by that motor I've discussed before, the ATP synthase. But to build the motor, you need the instructions on the DNA read by decoding machines using ATP made by those motors. So what do you call a three-way chicken and egg problem? Because that's what you have here. But also DNA needs machines to reproduce itself. So DNA has the instructions to build its own replicating machinery. But if you didn't have the replicating machinery, you couldn't pass those instructions on to the next generation. Another thing is the instruction reading and replicating must be incredibly accurate right from the start. You see, even one mistake in a thousand, you're bringing a mistake into the next generation of machines, which will therefore do a worse job of reading those instructions, which would make a worse machine do a worse job. The whole thing's gonna come to a halt. It's gonna come to a crash really quickly. So this goes back to Genesis 1, where God said everything was created very good. And we see from this sort of science that everything had to start off very good. It couldn't start off reasonably good, little bit good, and build up the goodness. If it didn't start off very good, it couldn't even get going at all. So what we're seeing in the real world is starting off with perfection, and then it's deteriorating because of sin and the curse.
0: Isn't it true that DNA is a very unstable molecule? And in fact, if it didn't have a built-in system to repair itself, it couldn't function at all. And that it's so complex that there really just isn't any reasonable way to envision how it could have come about by chance.
2: Now, it's interesting that DNA actually is a very unstable molecule. Every cell of your body is a damaged. You should be a mutated mess by now. But you're not because you have these amazing repair machines. And in fact, this was the discovery of the Nobel Prize winners in chemistry in 2015. Thomas Lindahl discovered that DNA should be decaying in about 10,000 years. So the thing is, why does life exist at all if it relies on such an unstable molecule? So he was motivated to discover repair machines that he realized living things must have repair machines because DNA is chemically unstable. So he set out to discover these repair machines. But DNA has the instructions for its own repair machines. But without the repair machines, those instructions would be degraded. So again, you've got these irreducible complexity. Another thing is DNA is a very long, thin, double helix, like a spiral staircase. Okay, the letters are the rungs of the staircase. Now, the DNA molecule is like only a few atoms thick, but it's long as a human body. If all the DNA in any one of your cells was put end-to-end, it would be as long as a man. So very long, very thin. When you think of the people who are a bit older in the audience who remember landlines with coiled telephone and how easily they'd be tangled up, See, DNA would be tangled up horribly, but it has a certain enzyme called topoisomerase, and what that does is chop something, it moves it, and it splices it back together again. The thing is, how do you explain that from evolution? Because it requires cutting, moving, and putting back together again. If any one of these steps didn't work, it wouldn't work at all. So again, this is an irreducibly complex enzyme. It has to be fully functional or it wouldn't work at all. But again, DNA has the instructions to build that topoisomerase detangling enzyme. But without those enzymes operating, it could never read the instructions to build it because it would get tangled up in the process. So it needs a topoisomerase to read the gene for topoisomerase.
0: What resources would you recommend for Christians who want to study more about why the complexity of life requires an intelligent cause?
2: Okay, so there's a a book I wrote called By Design, which is evidence for the designer of the universe, the God of the Bible. And one of the big chapters in that book is about the origin of first life. And there's also a chapter on origin of first life in The Greatest Hoax on Earth. And there's a chapter in the book called Evolution's Achilles Heel, again, on the origin of first life. So any one of those, or all three of them, if you like would cover something, but also the DVD called Evolutions Achilles Heels. there's one of the nine sections, is about the origin of first life. And also to the creation.com website, there's one page on the origin of life, one question and answer page on origin of life. Creation.com slash origin will take you there.
0: So the big takeaway from our discussion today is that an intelligent cause is required to explain the specified and irreducible complexity present in life. Higher orders of animals are so complicated, they point to a supremely intelligent creator. This means that the conclusion we get from Genesis, that God created all life, is amply supported by empirical observations and scientific evidence. After all, all life demonstrates that it could not exist without an enormously complex information system and the notion that a complex information system could arise randomly or chaotically is simply unreasonable in the formal sense of the word. The existence of life requires the organization of information that points directly to a personal being, God, who had the intelligence and power to not only design the system, but also bring it about. Dr. Sarfati, we'd like to thank you for joining us on Anchored by Truth today. And just as a reminder to our listeners, this as well as all of the Anchored by Truth episodes will be available by podcast shortly after the broadcast airing. So any listener today who has a friend or study group that could benefit from Dr. Sarfati's depth of knowledge can go to their favorite podcast app and search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. Today, for our closing prayer... Since there are so many places throughout the world where our Christian brothers and sisters are not free to practice their faith, how about today that we pray for those believers who live daily with persecution because of their faith?
1: A prayer for persecuted Christians Father of comfort and deliverance, you are a merciful God, and you have abundant compassion for those who suffer and are afflicted. Lord, we come to you to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who are being oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, and killed because they belong to you. We grieve for them and we cry out to you on their behalf. We know that you will never leave or forsake any of your children and that you know their sorrows better than we will ever know them. Yet we cannot remain silent, and so we plead with you to grant healing and release for them all. Help us to know what we can do to be a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves, and give us wisdom to know how we can help them. Help us to be generous with financial support, persistent in prayer, and committed to their cause. Cause our national leaders to act to improve their lot in accordance with your will raise up leaders who are willing to stand for you without compromise or flinching. We pray that you would cause the release and delivery of those whom you would have delivered. And for those who remain in suffering, be a powerful presence in their lives. Grant them the peace that could only come from your special touch. We long for the day when all your people will stand united at your feet and where the tribulations of this world will be far behind. We and all your people pray now and always only in your holy name. Amen. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time when we continue our discussion with Dr. Sarfati, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this or the other shows. Crystal Sea Books would like to make sure that all the Anchored by Truth listeners know that if they enjoy listening to the prayers that are presented at the end of each episode, those prayers are available for individual use from Amazon. There are two different prayer albums available. One album is prayers for family and friends, and another is prayers about faith and freedom. Those prayers can make a thoughtful centerpiece of daily devotions or they can be used with Bible study groups or small group meetings. The individual prayers, or an entire album, are available for a modest fee, and all the funds go to support the work of bringing the truth of Scripture to our current culture. To find the prayer albums, just go to Amazon and search on Purposeful Prayers to find either the Faith and Freedom album or the Family and Friends album. It's time for all of us to come boldly before the throne of grace. And all of us, and Anchored by Truth, would like to encourage everyone to be blessed by God's amazing grace. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're We're not famous, but but our our boss is. is.